You're listening to LawPod UK. It's a podcast series that covers a broad spectrum of national and international legal issues. It's brought to you by the barristers at One Crown Office Row, and this edition is presented by Lucy McCann. In recent months, protesters from the group Just Stop Oil have engaged in a series of direct actions, blocking the Dartford Crossing, throwing soup on Van Gogh's sunflowers, and smearing cake in the face of King Charles's waxwork, all in the name of environmental protection and climate justice. This has prompted fierce public debate. Away from these headline-grabbing protests, there's a quieter but no less fervent debate taking place about what role the law can play in responses to the climate crisis. This is exemplified most recently by the Friends of the Earth appeal decided by the Master of the Rolls. I'm therefore delighted to say that today on LawPod UK I have with me Dr Stefan Tile, who is an academic specialising in public law at Cambridge University and is the author of Towards the Environmental Minimum, which explores the implications of the climate crisis and environmental degradation for human rights protection regimes. Dr Tile, you are very welcome on the podcast. Oh, thank you so much. Firstly, I wanted to ask how you came to this area of research. Right. So uh, I won't bore you too much with my educational history, but what fascinated me about the intersection of human rights and environmental protection was that there was a puzzle that I could solve. There was a disconnect that I observed between the aspirations and the general principles that we find in domestic constitutions and international treaties and the practical business of legal adjudication and environmental regulation that was happening on the ground. Very high-minded principles, very encouraging sides on the one hand, but that doesn't really or didn't really seem to translate into practical action and practical improvement. So to take air pollution as an example, over 95% of the world's population lives in urban centers where the air pollution exceeds the recommended daily and yearly maximums that are prescribed and recommended by the World Health Organization. Governments of all stripes and of different legal systems and jurisdictions have committed themselves to improving the situation, but have really failed on the ground to do anything about it, to really move the needle in any significant way. And so one of the problems with that, that I diagnosed, was there appeared to be a normative gap. Courts were unsure, and I think continue to be a bit unsure and apprehensive about dealing with environmental claims in the context of fundamental or human rights protection regimes. And what I felt was needed was a framework to kind of help courts on the one hand to make sense of these claims, but also to help regulators. So essentially, really, what I try to do with the book and what this area of research hopefully does ultimately is to get states to invest in environmental protection, to take it seriously, and to stand by the commitments that they've already made and improve their environmental governance and balancing it appropriately with economic interests. So you mentioned the framework in your book towards the environmental minimum. Can you just outline the framework that you present in your book? Essentially, it begins with a very basic insight, I think, that a lot of people can get behind. And that certainly, I think, most lawyers and legal scholars I've come across can get behind. That environmental harm of a certain gravity has very serious implications for human well-being and can impact potentially on a pretty wide variety of fundamental rights and human rights. So you can take whichever example you want. 
you can take a right to protest, for instance. So even if the constitution only knows a right to protest, that of course has certain environmental presumptions baked into it. So it's good that I can go outside my door and protest government policy in Parliament Square, but none of that is really practically useful to me if the air pollution outside is so bad that I literally risk my health going outside and breathing in toxic air. There's the same example can be made for property. So it's great to be able to own property and to have that right being enshrined and protected through human rights. At the same time, it, that right to property is significantly hollowed out if I have planes directly overhead at 80 decibel noise spikes from Heathrow Airport or wherever it is. So you can see how there is an inherent connection there between certain basic environmental conditions and assumptions and pretty much any human right that I can think of. The reason for that, I think, is, is that ultimately all human rights are underpinned by some notion of either autonomy, of dignity, maybe even utilitarian considerations. It doesn't really matter, but these fundamental commitments lead us to certain basic environmental protection requirements. And from that, basically, my book draws two major insights. The first one, and I think possibly the most interesting one in terms of methodology, is that environmental harm claims under human rights protection regimes, whether that's domestically or internationally, are actually much more frequent than scholars, courts, and lawyers conventionally recognize and realize. So the impression from reading the leading textbooks and other works on this would be that, oh, it's a patchwork. You know, there's some areas of environmental protection in public law and in human rights, and there's some individual decisions that might be of significance, but there's no coherence to it. There's no consistent body of legal doctrine or of work out there that's useful in any way. And I think that's pretty much wrong. I think my research has shown that it's wrong. Over the course of my book, I accumulated a data set of over 300 environmentally themed cases from the European Convention on Human Rights and from other jurisdictions that stretched back well into the 1960s. And I supplemented that with a complete analytical summary and over 14 data points. I should mention that dataset is freely available to anyone who wants to have a look at it. It's on my ResearchGate page for free download under a Creative Commons license, so can be used in whatever research or educational capacity people want to use it. I think the main takeaway for our listeners today is possibly that lawyers, scholars, policymakers, and courts, crucially, rely only on a very limited sample of cases. So we have an incomplete picture of what the law is and what doctrine currently tells us. Reliance on landmark decisions has actively distorted our understanding of the law to the point where it was wrong as a matter of just analyzing the doctrine as it currently stands. So that's the first insight. It's about data. It's how do we research doctrinal problems? How do we get a better understanding of what the law actually means? And the fact that there is a significant gap between what we know about the law and what the law has actually said in the past. The second crucial insight from the book is that courts are struggling making sense of environmental harm in the context of a wide variety of cases. I've personally, for this book, looked at public law cases and human rights law cases, but you could branch this out into a lot of different areas of the law. Part of the contribution to solving this problem is the environmental minimum framework that I'm proposing. The interesting or the important thing to note about the framework is, is that it builds on existing foundational commitments that we have to human rights in various legal orders and international treaties, and that it really only presumes a very basic commitment to the rule of law and a state that is willing to interact with the outside world as a principled and reliable partner. So in other words, if you have commitments to human rights, if you're domestically committed to the rule of law, 
And if you're internationally committed to being a reliable and principled partner in treaties, then this is a framework that can work for you. The goal is to help courts conceptualize and engage with claims of environmental harm in the context of human rights and public law in a consistent and principled manner, because a lot of the times in a lot of those cases that I've analyzed, the reasoning is a bit all over the place. It doesn't seem to follow very clear lines, and at least in some areas. And there's mileage, I think, in having an ordering framework that kind of helps making sense of how cases should be analyzed. That doesn't prescribe any particular outcome. Courts obviously will be operating in different institutional and constitutional contexts, which informs their levels of deference, their standards of proof, and all these other things. These are just very basic claims that I think flow very directly from commitments to the rule of law, human rights, and international treaty making. Judges, in other words, are not, in my mind, these enlightened philosopher kings that bestow onto us great insights from on high that we then all need to arrange our legal system around. So ultimately, the environmental minimum helps us evaluate and helps courts evaluate environmental regulation and governance, even against the backdrop of significant scientific uncertainty over especially causal links, which is the thing that we always get hung up on as lawyers, and in the face of systemic national and global challenges like climate change, but there's many others that could be mentioned here. Importantly, the environmental minimum does not fix all problems. <laughs> we are also not going to achieve all the aspirations that activists might hold by implementing it. And I'll be the first person to say it, it has an unashamed preference for incremental improvements that are very much in line with existing legal categories and principles. Radical change is, I think, perhaps in climate change, especially something that will be necessary down the line, but it is something that I think needs to be initiated and needs to be driven by the directly democratically accountable branches of government. And by that, I mostly mean parliament in the UK, but also international organizations that are made up through the principle of one state, one vote. The requirements of the environmental are also, and this is probably the part that will be a bit of a source of frustration for environmental activists is also an inherently minimal one. It really only provides and seeks to implement basic conditions that are cognizant of the level of scientific certainty, whether it's high or whether it's low, and any prior legal regulation that already exists. There's a significant element of deference once the state has actually decided to regulate an environmental issue. So it really works for a whole lot of jurisdictions, essentially because it only provides this very baseline protection. Within the book, you talk about a specific risk standard. Can you explain for our listeners what you mean by that and how it fits within the framework? Yeah, so this is one of the linchpins of the framework. The crucial filtering stage of the environmental minimum, it's essentially, as I call it in the book, it's a trigger for the applicability of the framework. It means that claims to human rights violations based on environmental harm have to be substantiated. And it enables courts to scrutinize whether further investigation of the claims are in order or whether it's something that needs to be discarded on the basis of a very baseline surface level analysis. So you mentioned that one of the main priorities for the book is about the data set and looking at case law, which has previously been viewed in a sort of patchworky way. And the main focus of your book is the European Convention on Human Rights. Why did you choose the convention? And you've given us some insight into what that investigation unearthed, but I'd be interested to hear more about specifically that field of jurisprudence. 
One of the main reasons for choosing the convention is that after I conducted my survey of the cases that were available in different jurisdictions, surprisingly enough, I didn't expect to find this, but the European Convention of Rights just had by far the most cases. Cases stretching back to the early 1960s, and this actually seemed to have been a thing at the time of dropping contaminated nuclear waste into the North Sea. So these kinds of things that have been going through the ECHR system for a very long time, there are over 300 cases of different variations on environmental issues out there. The two big categories are what I call category one claims, which are claims against the state over environmental harm. In other words, saying that the state through its action or inaction has not taken sufficient measures to address the environmental harm in question. And then there's category two cases where the opposite is the case. The state has taken some regulatory action to protect the environment, but people feel aggrieved by that. So for instance, they are denied planning permission in a nature reserve where they previously were allowed to build summer homes. The doctrine has applied rich developmental history. And I guess what was attractive for me, because I'm making claims not just about one particular jurisdiction, but ideally for a lot of jurisdictions, is that to a significant extent, the European Convention is indicative of a minimum standard for Europe. And finally, and I think most intellectually attractive for me was that the European Convention really only contains the first generation civil and political rights that the vast majority of constitutions in the world contain. So it makes the case that I want to make comparatively harder in the sense that it would be easier to make the case if there was a right to an environment of a certain quality already written into the convention. But on the other hand, if I can make the case against the backdrop of a system that is mostly geared towards securing civil and political rights, then I think it becomes much broader in its application, much more easily applied in other contexts as well. So those are the three main attractions, I think. But I should say, I also looked at the African Charter of Peoples and Human Rights. I looked at the American Convention on Human Rights, and I had a look around and surveyed at least some of the other systems, although there is little to none case law in some of the other ones. Climate change litigation continues to grow in prominence. You say you've been looking at cases since the 60s, but no doubt you've noticed an increased proliferation of cases recently. Globally, the cumulative number of climate change-related cases has more than doubled since 2015, and we're seeing an increasing number of successful claims against states, I guess in that category one kind of case that you talk about. So, for example, in June, the Prague Municipal Court upheld a claim by a group of Czech citizens against the government of Czechia for its inaction on climate change and ordered the government to adopt additional measures to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions by 2030. In your book, you discuss the concept of polycentricity, and you've kind of touched on this already when you spoke about deference to policymakers, to legislatures. But can you explain what is meant by this and give us your view on whether you think courts are best placed to adjudicate on what are quite highly complex policy questions on the environment? So the concept of polycentricity is a really interesting one. It was first articulated and developed by a US legal scholar, Lon Fuller, in the 1960s. The article was then published posthumously. Fuller believed that polycentricity sets hard limits to the appropriateness of legal adjudication of policy questions, particularly when there are resource implications. Now, it's important to note that when Fuller talks about polycentricity and polycentric problems being complex, he doesn't necessarily mean that in a factual or legal sense. 
the defining characteristic for Fuller of a polycentric issue is that there is an interconnection of multiple issues and stakeholders and a vast number of individuals ultimately are affected by any decision that is made. Um, that's a bit abstract, so let's take an example. Um, imagine price negotiations between a car manufacturer and their dealership network. Now, this car manufacturer wants to figure out what the best price is, in quotation marks, to charge for its car. Regardless of what price the dealership network and the car manufacturer ultimately land on, the price that they set affects supply and demand, and that in turn influences a lot of the factors that were taken into account while making the original decision. So things like salaries and, and wages, the overhead costs of making the car, profit margin expectations, production costs, insurance, advertising, all these things are affected by the price that you ultimately set, but they also formed the conditions that you took into account when making your original determination of where you should set the price. So in, in the end, you're, you're cutting a bit of the loop. When, no matter what you decide, it affects the original decisions as well. For what it's worth, I think Fuller is right. Polycentricity is a feature of our world and especially of the legal world. And I think it's very fair to say that in the UK, this idea still holds sway in courtrooms and in the imagination and description that we encounter in scholarship. It, it gives courts a certain unease, I think, about scrutinizing government policy too closely, especially when there are resource implications and distribution implications. When it comes to polycentric issues, Fuller thought that courts were uniquely ill-suited to evaluating such cases. Why? Because he said, well, they only hear two sides of the argument. They only get input from the party that wants the claim to succeed and the party that wants the claim to be defeated. Consequently, the court must also make all or nothing decisions. It either finds in favor of the claimant or of the other party. And this is the crucial thing for him. He says what courts do in order to, to manage polycentric issues, they try to recast them into familiar patterns of decision-making and try to make them fit, shoehorn them, if you will, into the characteristics of legal decision-making. I think he's right, but I strongly disagree that this is something that is unique to courts. And I think if we take Fuller's argument about polycentricity seriously, as I think we should, then it has implications for virtually any form of decision-making that we can come up with. So parliaments, for instance, recasts very complicated policy issues in terms that suits its decision-making process. Governments do the same thing, executive bodies, environmental regulatory organizations, you name it, they all do this. They try to take a very complicated, interconnected world that is very difficult for any individual or any organization to fully comprehend, and they try to simplify it down into a decision-making structure that they are much more comfortable with. Everyone does this. And I think while courts also do it, it doesn't really make the argument out that we should be particularly worried about courts. More importantly, I think there are myths operating in the background, especially when it comes to resource allocation cases. What's more persuasive, or the persuasive part that I would like to keep from Fuller, if you will, is, is that we should really be careful about letting courts making very radical change. So the more radical the change to the legal system, the further we move away from these fundamental commitments that we've made to human rights and the rule of law, 
the more it is required that there's democratic accountability and input. Now, I'm not one who says that courts don't have democratic legitimacy. I think they do. It's just not a direct legitimacy. But I think the further we move away from these basic assumptions and the things that flow from them, the more I think it's necessary for direct democratic input through parliament and through the democratic process. That is not to say that courts should not be bold in their interpretation of the law, as long as it can be justified on the basis of these fundamental commitments. And that's ultimately, I think, what the environmental minimum tries to do. On those fundamental commitments that many governments have made and have emerged through democratic processes are domestic constitutions. And many domestic constitutions now contain environmental provisions. So, for example, Section 24 of the Constitution of South Africa, which you refer to in your book, provides that everybody has the right to an environment that is not detrimental to his or her health or well-being. And broader constitutional rights are forming the basis for climate litigation. So, for instance, the case of Neubauer, have I pronounced that correctly? Neubauer yeah, and Germany. That's right, yeah. <laughs> Youth plaintiffs challenged Germany's emissions reductions targets by arguing that it violated Article 20A of the German Basic Law, which guarantees the natural foundations of life in responsibility for future generations. What's your view on the environmental protections offered by domestic constitutions? So I think it can actually be quite impactful depending on how it's designed. So you have on the one hand very high-minded, very good-sounding commitments to environmental protection in a lot of constitutions. The problem very much that I see is on the follow-through. That being said, I think where domestic constitution provisions really have an advantage is, is that it provides individuals with comparatively easy access. So Taking a case to Strasbourg is not only very resource intensive, it also takes a very long time. The challenge in Neubauer, for instance, went through within a comparatively quite short time frame. The advantage is, is that it allows for quite a direct examination of the legal system by a court that is institutionally and otherwise quite legitimate in addressing the question in the way that it is addressing, where it is always a bit of an arm's length relationship between, for instance, a member state and the court in Strasbourg. Okay, so there's a much more direct connection there. That being said, we're seeing the same issue that we see at the international level, we're seeing at the domestic level too, is that there is obviously limits to how far courts are willing to go. And especially the court in Dubauer, I wrote a case note about this case in the Model Law Review for anyone who's interested in the details about this. But essentially the case in Dubauer chose a very strained construction of fundamental rights in order to arrive at the outcome and then even the outcome wasn't that impressive because ultimately the court said, well, the emissions reduction targets fall within the margin of appreciation of the legislature and they can obviously not exceed certain boundaries that are being set to them. But to the extent that they don't do that, these are plausible emission reductions targeted. And as long as they're more or less being worked towards, then that is fine from their perspective. Now, that is not a very satisfying outcome, I should think, for the people who brought this case. But I think it shows us something about the institutional limitations of courts and that we shouldn't put all our eggs in one basket. It requires a multi-layered response that's at the global level. And I think that's where the magic is going to happen. There needs to be global level agreement because ultimately this is not a problem that any one domestic constitution can realistically hope to address by itself. 
where domestic constitutions play a much bigger role is providing regional and local environmental protection. So any environmental problem that you can think of that does not have these massive global scale implications like climate change, much better addressed ultimately at the domestic level, at the domestic constitutional level, than in the context of an international treaty, which will take a long time to negotiate, which will by necessity have certain vaguenesses and uncertainties baked into it, and that will not have the same stickiness in terms of enforcement as domestic constitutions tend to. Stefan, human rights holders are, by definition, human. And so a human rights approach is necessarily grounded on harms and threats to humans, which doesn't necessarily capture harm done to, for example, wildlife or ecosystems. One solution is to recognise the environment as a rights holder. So in 2008, Ecuador became the first country in the world to formally recognise and implement the rights of nature. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, so I think it's fair to say that um, my book is, and the framework that I develop is at times sceptical and at times a bit critical of these types of developments. That is because one of the animating issues that I recognized and that led me to ultimately write the book was that I saw the disconnect between, on the one hand, the constitutional international symbolism, and on the other hand, what was actually changing, or if anything was changing on the ground when it comes to adjudication and environmental regulation. So I think a risk is that constitutional international law-based innovations of this kind have a risk of just being mere symbolism. They don't really affect real improvements on the ground. They look good, and they make for good headlines, for sure. I don't want to deny that at all. And there is value in that for an environmental movement. I don't want to deny that either. But as a lawyer, I look at this through a legal lens and I'm thinking to myself, well, has this actually changed anything? Will this change anything? Or is it just something, a vague mission statement within the constitution or a treaty that doesn't actually do much on the ground? And in any case, depending on if it's an international treaty anyway, only has very limited democratic input. So the risk I think here is, is that we go for the easy win, which is the symbolic inclusion of these types of protections in the constitution or a treaty, as opposed to doing the hard work of actually changing legal adjudication and environmental regulation. So for me, ultimately, and for the framework, I think a better measure is to check whether states put their money where their mouth is, so to speak. So questions like, are states willing to fundamentally change the underlying rules that make a difference to the regulators, to the courts, and to polluting industries. So are we, for instance, willing to change the rules for environmental pollution and liability? Are we willing to change the rules surrounding causality, which we did for asbestos, for instance? So it's not like this would be unprecedented. Are we doing the same thing for environmental pollution? Are we changing? Are we actually imposing some sort of costs on the business models that are polluting our societies? Are we actually changing the way that regulators feel empowered and able to challenge harmful environmental practices and behaviors? So I think as long as business models prevail unchallenged, especially where they require extensive environmental degradation and pollution, and where they continue to treat pollution as an externality and using common resources like air, water, and other things without limitations. As long as that is still going on and regulatory bodies don't feel able to challenge them in a robust way, 
then I think there is no real change happening on the ground. And then I think something like the Ecuadorian constitution is nice, but I don't think it's meaningful. Environmental degradation and climate change are now everyday features of news cycles and our social media feeds, such that it's easy to feel a sense of climate anxiety. And you've obviously spent a lot of your time thinking and no doubt worrying about this. But I'd like to end on a positive note. What has given you cause for optimism that the law can, might, (laughs) will bring about some kind of transformative change? I think it's a grouping of a lot of different things that are happening. So I think on the one hand, the political debate in a lot of countries has shifted to the point now where the question is, how quickly and how fast can we address climate change as opposed to, should we be doing something about this? Should we be worried about this? Is this even real? So the tone has changed. The second is, is that there's a lot of very inspiring activism going on, especially the younger generations, really taking this cause up and trying trying their very best to push the political climate in the right directions. There's been litigation attached to that. At least in some cases, they were poorly argued, they could have been presented better, and I would have wished that there would have been some more consulting. But nonetheless, there's a lot of that happening, and that is also a positive development. Major constitutional courts like the German courts are dipping their toe or doing more than just dipping their toe into these issues and are willing to put up a certain guideline for the states to say, we're not going to prescribe into the minute detail of how you need to approach climate change, but we will require you to make a strong effort and we will need you to work towards this goal because we recognize its importance, not just domestically for Germany, but globally. I think the momentum is shifting, in other words. And that's a very positive development, and I hope that it ultimately leads to the right outcomes. That being said, while lawyers can be activists, we're not usually lawyers because we're activists. Law comes afterwards. Once the political decisions have been made, once the direction of travel is clear, then the law comes in because we provide the structure, the system of thinking about the problem and trying to address the changes. And so in that sense, we're not necessarily the first wave, but we'll be the ones to consolidate. So before we go, Can you give us one recent environmental law case that you think everybody interested in this area of law should read and tell us why? Right. So it's a bit niche, but uh, I'll go for it anyway. I would encourage everyone to have a look at our, on on behalf of Richards and the Environment Agency and Valley's Quarry Limited. It's interesting because it looks at Article 2 and Article 8 of the convention in the context of an alleged failure to properly regulate hydrogen sulfide emissions. The argument is very interesting and perhaps reflect a bit on how the argumentation could be augmented through the type of framework that I'm suggesting, but also to kind of see some of the peculiarities of the case and how that fed into that whole decision-making process. I should note, however, that this case was overturned in the Court of Appeal, so it's not an illustration of where the law currently stands in the United Kingdom, but I think it is very much a way of combining these environmental harm claims together with the human rights claims in the context of a very public law heavy environmental regulatory decision. So I think it's very instructional in that sense, even if it's not currently at least a good law, but I hope it will be in the future. Well, I think that's a fantastic point on which to end our discussion. Thank you, Stefan, for coming on LawPod UK. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me and I hope everyone enjoyed the program. This episode of LawPod UK was presented by Lucy McCann. 
and produced by the barristers at One Crown Office Row.